The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. This is Jennifer Menino with Berkeley Research Group, along with Jennifer Rangel, a healthcare partner at the law firm of Holland and Knight. Jennifer, so nice to be with you again. So nice to be with you again, too. So we had an insightful conversation during the last quarter last year. I think it was uh, December um, 2022. And now here we are in the first quarter, uh, 2023. Happy New Year. And uh, curious, Jennifer, on what you're seeing in the market and what's, uh, what are you seeing private equity focusing on versus where strategics or strategic buyers are spending their time? Um, that's a great question. You know, I, we're continuing to see a lot of private equity roll-ups. So in all sorts of different areas, both specialty and even, you know, primary care is becoming more um, prevalent with a lot of the roll-ups as well. So that's continuing to be an issue or a, not really an issue, um, a source of, um, of work. And then um, I think we're also seeing a lot of activity in the innovation and digital health space. Um, I was just on a call today with a, a more strategic investor client, um, and that was their primary focus. And so we're seeing a lot of activity both in telehealth, but also in other areas uh, where digital health and more innovation kind of intersect. You know, things focus more on uh, value-based care and expansions of how people can provide services in kind of new and different ways and really address the whole patient or whole individual's health overall and kind of manage that, uh, which is important for everyone's viewpoint. I mean, payers are interested in that, so I'm seeing activity there, but also um, certainly providers. And then we're seeing just the technology space that's really starting to focus more and more in this area. So I, I do you think COVID-19 just paved the way for this kind of expansion? I mean, we're seeing a lot of consolidation in telehealth. I know um, you, you've seen similar observations, but did, you know, COVID-19 uh, create this expansion into digital health or maybe made it even easier to enter um, that marketplace? Um, and, and I'm also curious what you think about the fact that um, the national public health emergency mandate ends in May and how does all that come into play? Yes, absolutely. I think it all comes into play. I think uh, the, I think COVID kind of created this kind of perfect storm of opening people's eyes to use of telehealth in a way that they maybe weren't thinking about it before. We were already seeing an expansion just for convenience, but now we're seeing primary care being delivered via telehealth, whereas it originally started out as more just urgent care. I think uh, the pandemic led to a greater need for behavioral health care, and a lot of that is being provided via tele, teletherapy, telehealth, different types of um, digital ways of doing that. So I, I certainly think it accelerated the pace at which digital health is growing and things like remote patient monitoring, which was starting, you know, certainly pre-pandemic, 
um, has just continued to grow and people are much more accepting of it. Um, I do think that it will be really interesting to see, you know, what happens as uh, the uh, public health emergency ends and, you know, coming up here very soon. And the few states that still have public health emergencies like Texas will end as well. Um, so a lot of the flexibilities that we had in place are going to go away. Now, in a lot of states, some of the state flexibilities had already gone away, but they were still there were still some, and certainly you had Medicare reimbursement flexibilities that expanded the ability to access it for that population. So although there have been some changes, um, I do think we're going to see some interesting things. In fact, just today, um, the DEA proposed a regulation under the Ryan um, Hyde Act, which involves um, prescribing of controlled substances via telemedicine. I haven't had time to read it in depth, but it just uh, it was just uh, put out this morning. It hasn't, I don't think it's been officially published yet. So it was just the early release. But that, that's been an issue because there were flexibilities that allowed physicians to prescribe controlled substances via telehealth and waived that statute and regulation during the public health emergency. But with that ending, now this regulation is aimed at kind of looking at, well, what do we do about people who started their relationship via telehealth and there was no in-person visit which is typically required under the statute. So I, that's one instance where they're trying to kind of address the timeframe of the public health emergency and then figure out, well, what do we do about it going forward while we're trying to kind of balance the concerns over, over prescribing of controlled substances and fraud and abuse concerns with wanting to allow flexibilities where it really is a medically, you know, there's a medical need for doing so. Right. I mean, I I was kind of thinking through um, with Amazon Clinic being a big player. Yes. Uh, you know, how, you know, what does the competition look like? How does that space look like? Are, you know, our health, our health systems making these kind of investments in um, digital health? Is it private equity looking for these kind of investments? It seems that um, you know, the it's a game changer with Amazon Clinic being in the market now. Yes, with the Amazon acquisition was really interesting because I think what we're seeing is more and more, you know, retailers, um, whether they're online or or not, at really getting into the healthcare space. And there's been so many, you know, very strategic acquisitions over the towards the end of last year that I think will just continue. And, you know, I don't think it's just. Um, you know, online retailers or, um, you know, large big box stores that are looking at these sorts of things. Certainly we're seeing strategic investments. I think you'll see, you'll, you're, we're seeing certainly health systems are very interested in digital health. There were, there's been some kind of smaller partnerships I've seen where they've really kind of gotten involved with looking at things like um, primary care um, via telehealth. Um, you know, I thought I was talking just very recently to a client that they are focused on uh, staffing in rural hospital and, and you know, on, on Indian reservations. And what they do is they kind of do locum tenens, but via telehealth, uh, which was kind of interesting, very interesting. Basically, they're able to reach areas that you could think you may not be able to reach otherwise. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, wondering where compliance 
will go as far as like establishing compliance programs, but then how how's the government actually going to regulate this virtual environment versus, you know, the, the physical environments? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And it'll be interesting to see how compliance evolves in this kind of new, new electronic digital field. Um, I mean, certainly we're, one thing we're seeing in the enforcement area coming out of, um, you know, in the post-COVID world it is now a lot of audits and reviews of teletherapy and things that are in telehealth that was happening during the pandemic and, you know, wasn't medically necessary, uh, especially some of the ones you've seen lately are, are more focused on, you know, genetic testing mm -hmm. and telehealth to qualify for that. So I think we'll continue to see enforcement as we always do with anything kind of new and emerging. But I, I do think it's going to take it takes time to kind of figure out how to, you know, how, how to approach it. So it's definitely there's going to be a learning curve, but compliance remains and, you know, remains important. So I think whether you're, you know, I think what's interesting is a lot of these telehealth companies started out, you know, they were startups and they didn't necessarily have the um, budget for full compliance reviews. And when you're looking at something with a 50 state footprint, you have to think things through everything like core practice of medicine, nurse practitioner scope of practice, fraud, you know, fee splitting, fraud and abuse. Um, it's a lot. And I think that it, oftentimes they wait until they get to get enough funding to be able to undertake that review. So I think there's a lot of risk in that time period from the startup phase till they can actually really be sure they're in full compliance, which is, you know, certainly fraught with risk. But is there a baseline? I'm sure anyone who listens to this podcast, um, you know, they'll fall between the range of um, startup, having grown the startup or being, a, you know, a more sophisticated model. Is there a baseline that they need to be concerned with, not only from a regulatory perspective, but even from an investor perspective, right? Because, Absolutely. you know, investors are... Um, doing their um, due diligence and um, and regular regulators are keeping a close watch on um, this marketplace and and no one wants to be the the poster child of um, you know how to unearth fraud from a small telehealth to again a you know a uh, sophisticated uh, business so is there is there a baseline um, versus, you know, what a compliance program should look like in the eyes of the regulators versus the eyes of an investor? Yes, I think, I mean, I think for one thing, if you're, if it's a budgeting issue and you can't look at all 50 states, uh, and this is very much a state-by-state -state issue with federal law layered on top of it as well, and you've got HIPAA, that, that component, state law privacy, so typically, you know, we would advise them to look at all every state that they're operating in. But if that is not possible or if they're trying to do some sort of phased approach, our, my recommendation is typically let's look at the most restrictive states and make sure that you're in compliance with the most restrictive states that we're aware of. Um, and then if you're doing that everywhere, that certainly lowers your risk from a compliance perspective. So if you know that you've got practice of medicine issues in 26 
approximately states, then um, plan, you know, plan, plan for that and put a consistent approach in place. Uh, so, so those sorts of things, I think, help is just kind of thinking that through. And then, I mean, you can get a lot of great guidance on what a compliance policy and code of ethics and programs should look at. There's so much guidance out there, including the OIG's guidance. So there, I think there are ways to, to do that and, and try to put those pieces in place without, you know, a huge, necessarily a huge expense. I think the biggest thing, the risk is certainly making sure that you've got processes in place to comply, particularly with reimbursement um, and, and looking at where some of the bigger risk areas are, like contracting with physicians and providers, thinking about where you might have anti-kickback or stock law risk, kind of thinking about those larger statutes and then um, dealing with the states on a, you know, looking at the more restrictive states first. Yeah, that's great advice. Um... Well, I, you know, I definitely appreciate um, your time and I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm excited about um, digital health, grateful that, you know, we get to experience the evolution, more grateful that we're in that space and we get to uh, see it from a compliance and due diligence perspective. Is there anything of your projecting for this year that, um, you know, is going to affect these, um, this guidance that you refer to, not only OIG guidance, but the state to state regulations, because it, it sounds that um, every state is, you know, has a different mandate. And uh, I'm just curious what what you think is, is uh, coming down the pipe. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's interesting, because, you know, there's been a, a Concern that there would be, you know, less deals. Certainly saw some of that towards the end of last year. Although we've seen some of these larger strategic deals certainly are are active um, this year so far, and we're nearing the end of February. It's been pretty active in in my world. Um, I've seen more transactions picking up than certainly than we anticipated. Um, and I do think they're in a wide range of things from just add-on transactions to uh, more strategic transactions. I think I'm still seeing seeing private equity looking closely at digital health too, um, as well as kind of continuing to grow, you know, their, their networks they're already working in. So I think that'll continue. I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's, it'd be interesting to see what happens because I think that it hasn't really played out, at least in my experience, in my little world, uh, the way that we were concerned it would. So certainly I'm still seeing deal activity and a lot of interest. I do think, though, because of the compliance world enforcement risk, when there's a kind of more of a slowdown in the economy, um, I, I do think that investors are being very cautious and thoughtful in in their investments and they are looking very closely at compliance they're doing careful diligence and really um, thinking thinking through I think an investment and how does it fit with their company um, if they're for an institutional client they might be looking to expand new lines of business I think they're trying to be very thoughtful in that and I think so I do think that diligence is becoming, it's always been important, but it just certainly takes on, you know, more careful importance and depending on the market and when you're given the overall concerns with enforcement. 
Yeah, I think we're seeing uh, similar trends um, on the on the due diligence side, from meaning from financial, regulatory, um, and even with the investigations that we do. Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of activity in rollups, uh, longer timeline on new platforms, and I think it's just you know the sign of the times um, this year where. Uh, not to say that there wasn't a mindful approach before, but we don't just see a big rush to close and definitely a focus in that post-merger integration, again, from a compliance perspective. And I know that our teams, uh, you know, legal and uh, regulatory and investigations work closely together. Um, I appreciate your time, Jennifer Rangel of Holland and Knight. It's always a great pleasure to um, speak to you and hear your insights. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.